Happy mid-July, folks, and welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. Uh, this is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. As you know, this program is pretty unique. It's a podcast. It's also available on six radio stations in five states across the U.S. You know, the, we, we, we provide a voice for viewpoints that the corporate stations will never even allow. And, you know, those corporate stations, they've got their right-wing sponsors, of course. We've got our small business partners, our nonprofits, and, and listeners like you who support the program, either with a donation or a monthly pledge. You name it, folks. Uh, we need your support to make, keep this going. And, uh, again, uh, hope you enjoy the diversity of opinions that we try to bring you. Hey, before we launch into our first conversation, I want to take a second to thank our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery store and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. And you can also order your groceries online. Of course, Gateway's also got a catering and floral service. Check it out, folks. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. I would like to rec- uh, I would like to welcome to the program uh, Rob Hawk. I've known him since 2014. He's with Trusted Energy out of Storm Lake, Iowa. He's been in the renewable energy business for over 20 years and has been doing solar since 2008 and is now involved in a huge and immensely important program uh, at Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa. Rob, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you very much. I enjoy being here. Thank you. Yeah, so Grinnell, uh, you know, not the not a huge college, but a big enough. Uh, and uh, and a very important college in terms of um, uh, universities that tend to lead the way on progressive ideas mm-hmm. and on environmental stewardship. And here they are launching a huge project on solar energy, and you're a big part of that. Absolutely, Ed. And uh, although Grinnell is not, as far as student room enrollment, a huge college, it is 24 four billion dollar endowment so the endowment is it is an impressive college it's got a great curriculum uh, great programs but and one of the programs that they've really been working on is to be their sustainability Uh, the students have been asking for uh, the college to go carbon neutral and they've been progressively working on this with us since 2017 in order to reduce their carbon footprint and so we are building a $7 million project for the college uh, that is a 4 megawatt and of solar on, on single-axis trackers with a half megawatt or 500 kilowatts of Tesla battery storage. And what uh, percentage of the college's electricity will that provide once it's finished? Once it's finished, it'll be about 30% of the college's electric load. Okay, that's pretty good. And do they, are the, uh, is, is the college pushing to increase that through other renewable op- options as well? They are going to be going after more uh, renewables in, in down the line. And so there's opportunity. We had uh, signed under contract land 34 acres. Of those 34 acres, we're going to put solar on 18 of the acres and then fence off 20. So there's more room to grow there uh, as well as all the opportunities down the road. Okay. So the college is on board. What about the city? City was great to work with. Uh, you know, Grinnell, if you spend any time there, we got an office there. Thomas McFadden uh, fills that office in Grinnell, and it's just a wonderful community. Uh, you walk out our office door, and you got about five restaurants within one block mm-hmm. radius. And so it's a great community, very supportive of renewables and, renewables and uh, just, just a great community in general. And what about the uh, neighbor? How are the uh, neighboring farms and landowners uh, feel about the, uh, the array? 
the neighbors had some concerns. We took the time at the uh, review uh, for the building permit in order to address their concerns and and uh, and very easily to mitigate those concerns with some uh, shrubbery and some trees and some other things in order to mitigate any concerns. But uh, very easy with solar. Uh, concerns mostly about visibility. Visibility yeah, was okay. the biggest thing. There was concern about uh, the fans on the inverters and some other things that potentially could come up. But yeah, visual was the biggest thing. And the at the tallest, it's going to be eight feet tall. And unless you come up over a hill, you won't even know right. that the solar's there. And sometimes the uh, the the and this is a twenty acres. It's a big area. Sometimes the spaces in between the solar collectors are either covered with gravel or they're sprayed with chemicals to keep the weeds down. How are you going to manage that space in between those collectors? Well, if you want to talk about your neighbors, uh, we had a great neighbor, uh, Andy Dunham. Uh, it was with the Grinnell Heritage Farm there in Grinnell. And uh, he was wonderful on educating us how to be able to uh, take care of and maintain the site without having to use herbicides and pesticides. So... Uh, he connected me with uh, with um, some sheep farmers. We'll keep all of the grasses. <laughs> yes, we're gonna we're gonna keep the the grasses uh, maintained with sheep, and so and we're gonna take it out of corn and soybeans and make it pasture ground. So it's gonna still remain agricultural. It's still zoned agricultural. Uh, we're gonna plant solar panels and uh, and raise sheep, and then periodically, as some of the trees are gonna come up, we will. Uh, put goats on there once in a while in order to get the peskier uh, weeds under control. But goats won't jump up on the solar panels and have a great time. No, uh, Andy. Normally, yes, but Andy, <laughs> yes, you are correct. Goats will jump on solar panels and cause damage. But uh, Andy connected me to a farmer from Tama that has goats that do not jump. So they're not the fainting goats, but... There's uh, a non-jumping variety of goats? I there, did not know there, there was such a goat. There's a special goat out there, and I did talk to the guy, and it's really neat just to be able to see that, you know, we can we can have the animals that will eat anything, but don't jump. I bet that goat wouldn't survive a day out in the wild. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I don't think so. Yeah. So uh, this is great news about Grinnell College. And this may be beyond your realm of knowledge, but... Is this something that's catching on elsewhere in the country at colleges and universities? We are seeing a lot more of an uptake in renewables just as people are realizing we have to be doing something different. And uh, I hire a lot of military personnel that have come out of service, and and I ask them, Why did, what were you serving for when they did the tour? And they're protecting oil. Even Elon <laughs> right. Musk. That's yeah. You know, we're in the Middle East, we're protecting oil, and, and, and our sales manager, uh, Delta Force uh, Army, and, uh, you know, served in Afghanistan numerous times. He's been blown up by uh, roadside bombs mm. three times. Wow. And, uh, and, and so we're talking about this and uh, what he was doing over there, and essentially we're protecting oil. So we can do a lot of this you know, U.S.-based, American Iowa grown electricity and I know electricity is not the same as fuel but as you know Ford came out with a electricity uh, an electric truck and we got Tesla and, and Volkswagen is going to go all electric we can get to the point where we're not as dependent on foreign oil and what about concerns about the basic materials that are used to construct a solar a panel mm -hmm. uh, I, I hear some people can express concerns about the the, the rare minerals that are being mined to produce these panels, they're going to run out. Um, mm -hmm. There are issues in terms of how they're extracted. Is that, is that, uh, 
To what extent do you see that as a real problem, or is it just is it kind of a red flag that uh, needn't be raised? No, they definitely, when it's raised, we're able to easily mitigate those issues. Okay. I mean, it's it's uh, we look at the chemistry and then change the chemistry. And since when this started, originally the first solar panel uh, was an MIT professor in in the 30s. Wow. Okay. Uh, and so solar is not new, and they keep evolving. And so when these issues are, are rise, we can address them and then change the chemical composition of those panels. It used to be that mercury was in the, in the wire traces. And in our teeth. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and we could eliminate that mineral right. that, uh, uh, from the composition of the solar panels. So as those issues are brought up, then we're able to easily address them. And lithium, is that also a component of solar panels? Of, uh, of the battery storage, yes. Okay. And, and is, that, is that a problem in terms of extraction from the earth and in terms of uh, uh, reliability, in terms of the, 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 the supply? Lithium, the biggest constraint on lithium is that it comes from either Chile or China. And so there are lithium reserves in uh, Iraq, Iran, some of those over there. But there's also a huge supply in a dormant uh, volcano 200 miles away from the Tesla battery factory in in Reno, Nevada. So, I mean, once they get that permit for that uh, lithium reserve, uh, it will be incredible the drop in price because the cost of the storage really comes from the transportation. So what's keeping more colleges and universities from jumping on the solar bandwagon and going the same direction Cornell is going? Uh, it just takes some introductions, and it takes a little bit of time, and, and we are talking to other colleges, other universities, other schools. Uh, we just had Albert City Truesdale last year bring theirs online. and That's their a super high school in northwest Iowa. Yes, right. yep, yep, yep. Uh, Albert City. And uh, the superintendent was smiling from ear to ear because he loves saving that money. Mm-hmm. And it's equivalent. When they went solar, it's two school teachers, mm-hmm. payroll, um, yeah. that were saving that school. And so it, it's catching on. And uh, do you find that the, the has the state government been an ally or has the legislature been, you know, lukewarm, so to speak, on solar? What's, the, what's their position in terms of trying to move solar energy forward? We have had a lot of support for renewable energy on the utility scale, and and so that's been great. The at the consumer level, it gets to be a little bit more contentious, right. and so and we're primarily trying to do the utility scale stuff. But uh, you know, the little bit of an incentives that renewables get uh, did not get a a welcome. Uh, yeah. This well, year. yeah, I wonder what it will ch- take to change that. I mean, I'm guessing that one reason Grinnell College is moving fast on this is because they've got a very active, engaged student body that have lobbied hard for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe there's a way to translate that kind of energy into into uh, pushing lawmakers to do a better job at supporting the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we we do have supportive lawmakers, but it's is making sure that they understand the importance of the consumer side. Now, as far as the incentives for the state of Iowa for um, the tax Grinnell, credits? Right, okay. the tax credits for Grinnell, it had no impact. I mean, it's such a huge project that $20,000 worth of uh, but if tax an, credits. But if another college decides to go the same route, they might be unfavorably impacted. They may not be able to access those credits. Uh, the, the Iowa tax credits or incentives are not big enough in order right. to have an impact. So mm-hmm. on its own, uh, renewables can stand without incentives um, if it was a level playing field. Yeah. Right now, it's not a level level playing field. Well, Rob, a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Uh, exciting to see that Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa, moving forward with a plan 
to achieve 30% of their energy, their electrical generation through solar energy. Pretty good. Yeah. We've been talking with Rob Hawk, folks. He's with uh, Trusted Energy out of Storm Lake, Iowa. Rob, thanks so much for joining us. All right. Thank you, Ed. Appreciate it. Good seeing you again. We'll be back in a minute, folks. Uh, Ed Fallon with you here. We have more talk coming at you here from the heart of America's heartland. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, bringing you progressive dialogue from America's heartland. And thanks to the local businesses and nonprofits who help make this program possible, including Bold Iowa, building urban-rural coalitions to address climate change and to prevent the abuse of eminent domain to build oil pipelines. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Get more information about classes and workshops at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. I'd like to now welcome uh, James Dyke to the program. He's the Assistant Director of uh, Global Systems at the University of Exeter in, in England, in Great Britain. Uh, James, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, first of all, condolences on the Euro Cup. <laughs> it's okay. I'm not a big football fan. It's all right. <laughs> okay. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I thought, I thought maybe the entire country was in mourning this week because of what happened uh, uh, on Sunday, but I'm glad to know you're fine. So um, you, um, you took on a, a bit of a sacred cow of the uh, climate movement, and that is net zero. Everybody's talking about net zero, getting to net zero by 2030, 2050. And uh, you wrote a very provocative, uh, you and two others wrote a very provocative piece recently that, um, that uh, claimed, and I quote, the premise of net zero is deceptively simple. First of all, can you explain what you mean by that? Well, it seems almost incontrovertible that we have to get to net zero. So when we say we've got to get to net zero or we are in a race to net zero, what we mean is we've got to stop our dangerous interference with the Earth's climate. And one way we're going to do that is by stop burning all fossil fuels, stop burning coal, oil and gas, zero out all our emissions that are being produced by land use change, mainly agriculture. But of course, we can't do that quickly enough. We're not going to get there in 30 years or something by the middle of this century. So the idea of net zero is that we will be able to have a small amount of emissions, maybe from aviation, cement, agriculture, 
And those emissions will actually remove from the atmosphere using things uh, that have been labeled carbon dioxide removal technologies, or sometimes called negative emissions technologies. When we get to that point, when we get to net zero, basically global warming stops. So it's deceptively simple. And in some respects, it's just obviously true until we actually make our impacts on the climate system overall neutral, then we're going to continue to drive global warming. So the uh, I mean, in, in the US here, we've had a lot of conversation about uh, cap and trade, uh, mm -hmm. which again was initially proposed as a very progressive way to try to address the climate crisis. But people that realized eventually was, oh, this is all we're doing here is allowing companies to continue their bad behavior uh, while you know, trading, <laughs> trading their ability to pollute uh, for, you know, for carbon neutral uh, options that, 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 that other, others will have to engage in. It allows them to do more and seem like they're doing the right thing. Is this, is this, um, is net zero kind of a global version of cap and trade? It certainly shares the same motivation, the, the motivation, which is essentially carry on with business as usual, because what near zero has got, it's got two components obviously right so it's got the first component which is how much carbon you're going to emit and then the other bit is you remove that carbon so it's got the carbon dioxide removals term so thus far people have been focusing on when we're going to get to net zero policies promises to get to net zero but what's happened is there hasn't really been any real critical inquiry as to what does that involve and what it does involve is the continuation of the burning of coal oil and gas and this ever increasing amount of proposed carbon dioxide removal, which we're going to have to affect around uh, the middle of this century. Now, now, quick carbon carbon dioxide removal, not a term I'm familiar with. Perhaps some in my audience are, but it sounds like what you're describing is what we call geoengineering. Some people would argue that it is geoengineering, right? Um, some people say no, no. So you know, geoengineering is a scary scary term that's used to describe things like solar radiation management, which is literally the spraying of sulfuric acid into the Earth's stratosphere to reflect some of the energy from the sun back out into space. Or as, or as Andrew Yang proposed during the presidential uh, primary uh, a couple of years ago, uh, packing soil around the base of glaciers to slow them from melting. Yeah, there's a whole kind of wacky range of ideas. Uh, sometimes it's called climate repair, which seems to be the respectable older uncle of geoengineering. So geoengineering <laughs> is kind of wacky, crazy kid. Crazy climate repair, yeah, climate repair is the more sober, grown-up sort of presentation of essentially the same thing. It's, right. it's trying to unpack some of the damage that we've done on the Earth's climate. The thing with carbon dioxide removal is it could be as simple as planting a tree. And there's a lot of interest and excitement about tree planting, because right. if you do the maths, if you plant about a trillion trees on Earth over the next 30 years or so, you're going to be able to withdraw a significant amount of carbon from the Earth's atmosphere. Now, there's a whole bunch of problems with that that we might want to talk about later. But in principle, and again, it's always in principle. In principle, these things seem so simple. They seem so straightforward. But in principle, if you just plant a bunch of trees, if you maybe restore peatlands, if you do other kind of habitat restoration, you can kind of get natural systems to work a bit faster and suck down some of the carbon dioxide that we put up in the Earth's atmosphere. That's the kind of respectable, kind of um, cuddly version of carbon dioxide <laughs> removal. It goes all the way up to much more kind of technologically extreme um, schemes, for example, direct air capture, which are running these vast sort of air conditioning systems that would suck carbon dioxide directly out of the Earth's atmosphere, 
concentrate it and then pump it underground into disused oil and gas fields where it would right. have to one take of those thousands is, of years. One of those is being proposed uh, here in Iowa. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of excitement about it, of course, but those of us who maybe are paying more attention are a little bit skeptical. You have a good basis for your skepticism because carbon capture and storage has been around since the 1970s, actually. It's not a particularly right. new technology. But what carbon capture and storage has been almost exclusively used for is in the process of enhanced ore recovery. So you capture the carbon dioxide maybe from natural gas, which is being pumped out of the ground. You compress that carbon dioxide and then you pump it back down into the ground in order to be able to force up more natural gas or mm -hmm. oil. So it's only been relatively recently, the last 10 to 20 years or so, that that's been proposed as a way of actually taking carbon out of the Earth's atmosphere. Because rather than pump it down into the ground to get out more hydrocarbons, we would pump it down into the ground and then just leave it there, what we call carbon capture, storage right. and sequestration. Right. Yeah. Well, the um, yeah, th this, uh, this conversation is becoming, uh, the conversation about net zero is becoming uh, a, a higher profile conversation. Uh, certainly happened uh, during the recent G7 summit, um, you know, they where again, all the countries, you know, now that the U.S. is uh, under the leadership of President Biden and not the climate denier Trump, uh, the G7 summit countries all said, yeah, we're going to get to net zero by 2050. And again, my impression from your take is that's nothing to get too excited about. Well, it's nonsense. I mean, if, if you include G7 uh, nations such as Australia, it has no credible plan. It has no credible route to stopping its dangerous interference on the Earth's climate. It's developing coal deposits as we speak. You know, it has a future that's heavily tied to hydrocarbon exploitation. But what's interesting in the net zero context is that it's arguing that its existing natural sinks, its existing ecosystems, its forests, already offset the carbon that the nation produces. So when you look at the removals in the context of how much carbon they are actually going to emit, then you've got the arguably just the, the sheer abuse of the term net zero, because it's not actually helping us address the climate crisis at all. So later this year, November in Glasgow, the COP26 uh, climate summit uh, convenes and great expectations on what that might accomplish. Uh, to what extent do you think participants are going to be willing to start looking at uh, looking at climate, the climate emergency from the perspective that you offer regarding net zero? And again, I think where you're going with this and where, I, where I'd like to go is um, we, we, we can't find excuses to continue to use oil and gas and, and, and coal. Uh, we, we've got to wean ourselves of fossil fuels as quickly and decisively as possible. Um, you know, no, no amount of offsets are going to uh, accomplish what we need to accomplish as long as we continue to, to continue down that road. To what extent do you think the COP26 um, summit is going to uh, you know, model that kind of approach, that kind of language? Well, hope springs eternal. I mean, you know, there's always something that might happen. I mean, just right now we're seeing quite significant changes in mainstream discourse and reporting on the climate and ecological crisis as a consequence of the heat dome on the Pacific Northwest. I mean, pe people are literally dropping dead because of extreme yeah. uh, temperatures. There's chronic drought further down in, in the continent, and there's been lethal heat waves across the rest of the world. So who knows what's going to happen by the time we get to COP26. I mean, I am skeptical, and I'm skeptical because 
in part because of, of the, the way in which net zero has been used. Because if you look over the last 30 years of this climate policy system, I mean, it, now we're talking about net zero. Previously, it was carbon capture and storage. Previously, it was clean coal. Previously, it was offsetting and natural sinks. Every single time when we think we need to make progress, the solution is essentially the protection of business as usual. They're not seeking to protect the climate. Now that we've left things so late, to limit warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. The only way that we could possibly do that is with really quite radical action that would need to see a major shakeup of the way in which we try and conduct politics and maybe even economics. And I can't see that any prospect that's going to happen later this year. So I guess what we're going to see is more promises about net zero, more enhanced pledges, which will unfortunately not really result in a great deal of action. Well, I I really appreciate you. Uh, you're, that's that's a sobering and disturbing message, but I think a candid one that needs to be said, needs to be heard, and hopefully there will be the kind of shift that uh, begins to look at um, real uh, real action at the uh, COP26 summit, and not just um, again continued um, ways of pushing the problem off. Nor as something we're going to talk about later in this program, the solution is also not to put rich billionaires on spacecrafts and send them to Mars to grow potatoes. But um, uh, <laughs> so anyway, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us, uh, folks. We're talking with James Dyke. He's uh, he's with uh, Exeter University, the University of Exeter, Great Britain, and uh, a longtime uh, activist and commentator on on the uh, climate emergency. I'm uh, most recently with uh, his uh, take on net zero. James, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. All right, folks, back in a minute here on the Fallon Forum with more conversation from America's heartland. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Hey folks, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon with you here broadcasting from America's heartland, actually the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Thanks to our business partners, including Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or just give Dr. Holding a call at 515-232-8766. Thanks also to Western Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village, uh, Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in both English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. 
All right, I am delighted to welcome to the program Jennifer Terry. She's with Des Moines Waterworks, and water is a big issue. It always is. It's a bigger issue now, given the drought. You know, I want to start, though, Jen, by, by talking about the, um, the Think Downstream initiative, which caught my attention because, yeah, we need to be thinking not just about ourselves, but downstream, whether it's the Tumwa or New Orleans or the Gulf of Mexico. Jen, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm pleased to be here. Um, I'd love to talk about our Think Downstream initiative. So um, uh, when I was at Waterworks uh, a few years ago, I worked for Bill Stowe, the former CEO, and uh, he and, and some staff developed this concept of Think Downstream. And so we're really giving that legs right now. And so Think Downstream to us is uh, not only a way of thinking and communicating, um, but it's also, of course, a literal way of how you live in, in, in your watershed. So we have a website called thinkdownstream.com and we're using that concept to do strategic planning right now and um, our metropolitan regionalization process to ensure that we shepherd our natural resources uh, in, a, in a smart way, looking to the future. And also um, thinking downstream literally, Iowa's the largest contributor of nitrogen to the Mississippi River Basin, and that's not okay. And yeah. so other um, states have done a better job at trying to clean up some of the mess in their water systems. Other states have done a better yeah. job, and, and we know how, how we can make it better. We just yeah. need to execute. So, I mean, is there, yeah. if I was living in Louisiana, if I was a shrimp fisher person or any, any, anybody at all dependent upon water, I'd be really mad at Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would be mad at Iowa too, actually. And I rode in a boat with one of the shrimpers about three years ago. And, you know, he was very apolitical. He was just telling me his story. And, and it's tragic. It's, mm. it's not okay that we impact people's um, livelihoods. And in some circumstances, generations of families aren't able to uh, practice their livelihoods because of upstream pollution from farm chemicals and soil and things. And of course, yeah, it affects Louisiana and beyond, but it's a big problem here in Iowa as well. Uh, Des Moines is a, what a, the, the water customers in Des Moines are about, what, 500,000, maybe half a million, say. And, uh, and yet we're drawing our water from one of the 10 most polluted rivers in the country. That's a big deal. You guys have quite a task on your hand to render that clean and safe, and you do it. But I think one of the tools you use to do it is one of the most expensive and largest nitrate removal systems in the world. Yeah, that's true. Uh, the, the good news is we've been doing this for 101 years, and so we have experience with drought and, and pollution and contaminants, but they continue to escalate. And so we continue to build and build and expand and plan just to try and stay ahead of the additional contaminants that are coming at us. Uh, almost 30 years ago, we built what was then the largest nitrate removal facility in the world in order to control nitrate and meet regulatory standards. And now our biggest foe is harmful algal blooms and the, and the toxins that they can emit. So that's a new problem. A relatively new problem is that related to increased agricultural pressure, increased development pressure, uh, climate change, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I think maybe all those things. I'm okay. an attorney, so I'm not a, a climatologist. I would say we know what causes harmful algal blooms: um, slow-moving water, hot temperatures, over-nutrified water. All contribute to toxins, and we certainly have those in our two watersheds. Mm. Uh, land use is overwhelmingly agricultural. 
and so we also have uh, confined animal feeding operations in both of our, our watersheds. And so the water has to travel through a lot of those working watersheds in order to get to us. We rely on rivers, hmm. which is different than some uh, utilities do. Right. And 700 streams, 700 waterways in Iowa, streams, rivers, creeks, lakes, ponds, 700 are, 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 are described as polluted. Certainly, and that's a problem. It is, and mm. it's not just a problem for Des Moines. There's a misconception in the public and some policymakers that it's just a Des Moines problem. Actually, there's 48 utilities, public water systems, who treat for nitrate in the state. Mm. So we're building a small community of those utilities to understand educational resources and ways that we could help improve that surface water and source water. Now we all drink water, obviously, and uh, not, water is important not just for for, for our survival, but it's we use it to clean. We use it to uh, grow our food. Uh, we use it for a lot of purposes, uh, and it's, it's 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 not an urban or rural uh, um, issue. But yet, there seems to have developed an urban-rural divide in Iowa, and we saw that kind of come to a head a, a few years ago with the lawsuit by the Des Moines Waterworks, trying to um, get the counties at the headwaters of the Raccoon River to responsibly manage all the, the soil, the nitrates, everything else running off into the watershed. How did that pan out? Well, that suit was dismissed a few years ago, unfortunately. Um, it was the right thing to do at the right time. It opened a lot of doors for discussion. Uh, there was a piece of legislation passed here in our state. Uh, definitely, in our cases, has not improved the water in the last 30 years, let alone the last five. So although all options are on the table for Waterworks, uh, currently we, we don't have a lawsuit in our back pocket. We're, we're not uh, litigating at the current time. We look to the regulators and our state government to help us uh, clean up our source watersheds. So, and we're also undergoing some ideas and thinking downstream again with who we partner with. And so we're partnering with some really interesting folks this summer. Um, for example, nonprofits such as the Practical Farmers of Iowa or um, actually a farmers cooperative and a land management company. We're sponsoring mm. a series of webinars um, that are aimed at non-operator landowners to, to help them understand what it's like to live in a watershed. So if you humanize your fellow residents of a watershed, it helps take away that, that divide. And we all understand that what we do upstream and downstream is all connected. And that's a big part of how I approach uh, all the work I do is trying to find that common ground. I mean, earlier this year, I had a series of interviews with uh, Iowa voters who supported Donald Trump. That was interesting. And we found common ground, believe it or not. There was a lot of, there was a lot of common ground once we start moving beyond the name calling and the political labeling. But I think that certainly can and should happen when it comes to our water as well. So um and all the all the challenges that you face are I think being exacerbated presently by the drought, which has been going on for a couple, three years now, I believe. Um, absolutely, water quantity issues are colliding this summer with water quality issues. Uh, we are still in a severe drought condition in, in our two watersheds, so we have had some rainfall the past few days, but and I don't believe it's happened up in our watershed. So uh, it's a pretty precarious situation when you rely on two rivers, and if, uh, if they're low already, and uh, let's say that they develop harmful algal blooms, it's going to be a precarious situation. We're monitoring constantly, and our production team is on alert uh, every day right now as we, you know, we think the harmful algal blooms are going to start moving in. Yeah. Wow. So that, that, and again, as bad as it is in the upper Midwest in terms of drought, uh, it is so much worse west of Denver, everything west of Denver, uh, in some places, uh, almost unthinkably 
uh, you know, taxed right now by, by severe drought. What does the West look like in terms of water availability, management? I know this is a bit out of your range, yeah. uh, Jennifer, but uh, what does the West look like in terms of uh, you know, getting, getting by uh, if the drought persists? Uh, well, I'm, I'm familiar with what their utilities do, and their utilities have um, you know, pretty strict ways uh, in terms of how to use water. Right now, we're just asking people for a 25% reduction in lawn watering. And so compared to what the folks are having to do out west, uh, we think that's reasonable, and that's what we're asking people to do right now in response to the drought and water quality is just to reduce lawn watering. Yeah. And that's, is it, are people rising to the occasion and saying, sure, I'm going to cut back on my lawn watering? They are. Okay. We've seen a reduction in usage. And so we think we went to stage one of our, of our water uh, shortage plan. And so we have been relying on folks like you and other outlets to help us uh, get the message out that we all need to work together to, especially during this tough summer when, when we have quality and quantity issues. And our goal, of course, here. Uh, Kathy and I are trying to get rid of as much lawn as possible, <laughs> but we do have occasionally some crops to water, but we try to do that as, as responsibly as possible and, and minimally, you know. Perfect. Encourage those crops to put their roots low, dig deep. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I still, I, I think about what's happening out west, and I'm thinking at some point, places like Phoenix, Las Vegas, and who knows, maybe the Central Valley of California as well, are going to become unlivable. Either they're going to have to import water from somewhere else, or they're going to have to move. Is that is that an exaggeration? Um, you know, I'm not qualified to speak to that, but I will tell you that utilities across the country are undergoing climate change assessments, and so part of our strategic plan is to be very forward-thinking. What's going to happen to our watersheds with extreme events? Mm -hmm. uh, more droughts like this, fewer droughts like this, more rain, less rain. So um, I, in, in, in terms of our planning, think downstream is our motto, and so we're trying to figure out as part of our plan, what we're going to do in the event of climate change in the next 5, 10, 15 years. What do you think climate change looks like for Iowa in the next 10 years? Well, that's really interesting. I've talked to some time. Some <laughs> Where's your crystal ball? Yeah, I'm not qualified. <laughs> no one's qualified, really, just to take a guess. You know, guess. I hear really interesting things. So I was raised on a dairy farm, so I've been immersed in agriculture my whole life. So you read all these uh, possibilities, like we won't be able to raise um, uh, livestock here. Uh, in certain watersheds. It'll be too hot. We won't be able to work outside. So what does that mean for our utility workers if, if they have to limit their work outside during the day? Um, I think how we raise food and how we raise animals and what types of food and, and plants we raise here could absolutely be impacted in Iowa. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Jennifer. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. You took a real risk. I'm an attorney. I'm not known for being entertaining, so thank you. <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you don't scare me. <laughs> uh, folks, uh, Jennifer Terry with the uh, Des Moines Waterbrooks has been our guest. When we come back from a short break, our D'Artagnan Brown's going to join us. D'Artagnan is a, uh, unlike most people, uh, like me, he listens to right-wing talk radio sometimes, and uh, the stuff that Michael Savage was saying recently comparing uh, critical race theory to, to, to Nazi Germany. Absolutely insane. We'll be back in a minute to talk about that on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. 
Good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham has been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yup, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. Hey folks, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks again to our local business partners who helped make this program possible, including Architecture by Synthesis, where Mark Klipsham offers planning and design services for high-performance, low-maintenance homes and buildings. Mark specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including highly insulated structures made from grain bins. That's Architecture by Synthesis. Thanks also to Groovy Goods. That's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop, where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods calls itself a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. Learn more at groovy-goods.com or stop in at 23rd and University Ave in Des Moines. It is my delight to welcome to the program my friend and fellow musician and an educator and activist for so many good causes, D'Artagnan Brown. D'Artagnan, welcome to the program. Well, howdy, 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 Ed. How you doing? Yeah, good. Um, We're shaking hands on the air. <laughs> <laughs> you're also, in addition to all the other great things that was mentioned about you, like me, you're one of the few people who listen to Shock Jock Radio critically, not just, <laughs> not just to drink the Kool-Aid, but to see what's being said, what's going on, or as I like to say, I, I've said it for years, I listen to Rush Limbaugh, folks, so you don't have to. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. But recently, you put me in touch with something that I missed. Um, Michael Savage going off on critical race theory and basically comparing it to Nazi Germany. And I, let's, let's listen to that clip and then talk about it. A psychotic woman who came up with this lie called critical race theory, which is nothing but racism towards white people. No other right. race is targeted. I could go on and I could go on and on. I've studied history. I know where this starts. I know where it ends. It started in the same kind of thing started in Germany. The Jews were no good. The Jews did this. The Jews did that. The next thing you knew, they were being excluded from swimming pools. They didn't put them in concentration camps overnight. I studied this intimately. I am Jewish. I know how this starts. Attacks on white people is exactly what was done to the Jews in Germany in the 30s. Don't fall for this garbage. This is the road to the death camps. Wow, is all I can say. I mean, and that was on Newsmax, which is uh, the the new national media outlet that makes Fox News look like a liberal rant. Wow. Uh, I mean, what, what do you? How do you respond to something like that? I mean, well, where do you I, start? It, the well, the where you start, you have to go way back. You can't just start today on this. Um, right. You know, that we're, in a sense, we're in a uh, chicken's home-to-roost moment here because this whole phenomenon, right in, the, in that clip, you've got Michael Savage uh, talking about a now a contemporary issue, just happens to be, but at the same time, his whole approach 
is something that was spawned back in, uh, well, the late 70s into the 80s with what uh, was first called hate radio. Yeah. Uh, hot talk, I think, was the original marketing term. Right. They didn't call themselves hate radio. Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no, no. We're just standing up for what's right. But, um, but the uh, whole thing of um, keeping the audience upset, activated, emotionally uh, tense, and, of course, the separation along every line that you can think of, your culture, your typical culture yeah. war issues. Um, I was living in San Francisco in the late 80s. I moved there from Des Moines in 1987, lived there until 2014. At that point, we, in the, the liberal Bay Area, noticed the rise, the inexorable rise of this hate radio with Michael Savage. This is not our first go-round with him. Mm, he's been around a while. Yes, sir. The thing that was so interesting about it is that, of course, in that San Francisco market, uh, you would think that uh, obviously that's very um, liberal and sure. but tolerant. It's you know, but when somebody's actually coming up speaking over racism, misogyny, all of these different elements that make up this mode of broadcasting, that people would speak out. Well, a lot of us did, but it didn't make any difference. Well, I think because the, the, the station found that it was profitable to spew this stuff. Amen. It, it brought in listeners, and it brought in advertisers. And a company with such a family-friendly, air quotes here, family-friendly approach as Disney uh, was responsible for bringing hate radio, uh, t uh, Michael Savage, to the San Francisco So we can Bay blame area. Michael Savage on Mickey Mouse. That's right, buddy. Yeah. The mouse has claws and big, sharp teeth. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the mouse is a rat. <laughs> <laughs> radio, well, there was an article called Radio Rat Poison back mm. in the uh, 90s that basically yeah. made that point. So, how, I mean, how does a guy, how do you possibly get away with comparing critical race theory, which, uh, let me just read you. Here's the definition of critical race theory that I pulled off the Internet. All right. An analysis based on the premise that race is a culturally invented category used to oppress and exploit people of color. Critical race theorists hold that the law and legal institutions in the U.S. are inherently racist insofar as they function to create and maintain social, economic, and political inequalities between whites and non-whites, especially African Americans. I don't see how you can argue that's not true. <laughs> I mean, where did that? Where did you get your definition? Some. It's one. One of the first things that popped up, uh, and I should be able to tell you where exactly, but I can't. Well, that's. But do you, I mean, are you okay with that definition? Uh, it's okay. It, it says really. What's it missing? The thing that says it holds that the law and legal institutions are inherently racist insofar as they function to create this this whole idea of intersectionality. How did it get that way? It's mm. easy when you say it that way. You can still sort of get your hankles up or, you know, uh, and, you know, think that we're trying to say something that's bad and incorrect mm. when essentially when you do study from the very beginning of why the police, for example, were even put into society, then you understand why in a slave-holding society the function of the police, how that was formed, and then as time goes forward, how that form evolves. Mm. And at this point now, the thing that's the most disappointing about this is that besides negating the actual pure uh, context with which critical race theory was brought up, which was in 
advanced studies in law schools. Now they're scaring everybody, telling us that your little uh, five-year-olds and 10-year-olds are going to be taught this, which is not true. So it's a combination of straight-out lying and half-truth that, that uh, perpetuates this. Right. And then Michael Savage, of course, takes it to a whole other level. There, you know, everybody in America hates what happened in fascist Germany back in the 1930s, 40s. Uh, and so, of course, he ties it to the most odious chapter of modern history and tries to say that that's what we're doing with critical race theory. We're basically preparing to send whites to concentration camps, to death camps. I mean, how, how, can, you, how can you say that with any credibility at all? Well, it's not with credibility. It's right. just said with the ability, the ability to separate and just to keep you excited. Yeah. Um, we found that out uh, starting back almost with the beginning of, of social media, how, how easy it is to get people to, well, here we are, what, big lie world? Here we are. We're, how many, what percentage of the people think that our last election uh, didn't end like it did? Like yeah, it, way too many. Yeah, so it's just that whole idea that it became profitable starting with people like Savage to... Limbaugh. Uh, wow, right here, let's bring it local. Uh, to They made money off of separation. They make money off of keeping everybody excited on these social issues, and it's getting a lot worse. Yeah, so, yeah, and I, and I think... I certainly don't, don't recommend that people listen to the drivel on hate radio, uh, but I think it's good that some of us do and report on what's being said. What do you think the the normal person, not me or you, uh, what should the normal person do to respond to some of the uh, disingenuous rhetoric criticizing, uh, you know, something as basic as teaching that there was and is systemic racism in American society? Well, I don't know. This is going to be a very interesting time ahead as we try to work this out. If you're an educator, if you're a, a conscious citizen and you are not, and you believe in a multicultural world, which is what we've got here. We've got it. Got, you know, it seems and, like that's and, what we've and got. And I, I like it. I think it's a good thing. Well, it's, <laughs> it's the true American dream, you sure. see. Yes. And so a person who's running with critical race theory as a kind of a political wedge issue, the, the thing they leave out is that they're in in failing to recognize and tell the truth of American society, you're cheating both students and the wider society of learning about the fact that it is integration, it is the fact that America came together, all races, all creeds, all colors, guided by a constitution to create the world that we have. And there's no way you can get around that. So unless you uh, are trying to completely you know, leave everything out, and, and cheat people out of the opportunity to know of America's real magic, its real power as a country where everybody yeah. is a responsible. And, and again, a big part of the problem, and we need to have you back on to talk more about this, is the fact that radio has become the vehicle for this kind of hateful, hateful distribution of information. And how to get that back? You know, with the Fairness Doctrine being repealed and the Telecommunications Act basically allowing big corporations to own as many as many stations as they want, you know, you, we've got a situation right now that the, where the public airways are no longer public. They're owned by a handful of businesses that monetize them by putting on the most ridiculous content. That's right. And but all companies, whether uh, whatever part, they're local. 
They do have, they're very sensitive to local needs and local uh, listener yeah. views. So, Clever. hey, listeners, it's up to you. Dart, thank you so much for joining us, folks. We've been talking with D'Artagnan Brown. Thank you, thank you, Ed. When we come back, uh, if you're listening uh, to our podcast, we're going to be talking with the Des Moines City Council candidate. We're offering to interview all the Des Moines City Council candidates on this program, the podcast component. If you're listening on one of the many radio stations that rebroadcast this program, stay tuned. Kathy Burns with Burns and Bees Urban Farm is going to join us. That's right. Uh, we're going to be talking about Jeff Bezos moving to Mars. Maybe he's trying to move to Mars because he wants to grow potatoes, or maybe he's trying to escape the climate emergency. I don't know. We'll talk about that in a minute when we come back from a break. This is Ed Fallon, your host. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Ed Fallon. We're doing something a little bit different this fall. We are inviting all the Des Moines City Council candidates, all eight of them, to appear on this program for a 10-minute or so interview. And I'm delighted to have our first, I want to say contestant, <laughs> but we'll just say guest, uh, Corey, um, Corey McAnally. He's a Des Moines resident and a candidate for the, I think, third ward. Yes, sir. Yep. Yeah. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Really Thank you for taking the time. Going to uh, focus mostly on the climate crisis. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we'll talk about other things too, but first of all, just right to the point, climate change. Is it happening? Yeah, certainly. Uh, just for a little bit of context, my background is in biology, biochemistry. Okay. So I've spent uh, you know, much of my life into the science of these things. I'm not a climatologist by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, you know, if you look at the history of our planet, climate change as a concept is 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 certainly something that I, I, it would be hard to question from the way that our planet eb ebbs and flows. So, Right, but you're talking about long-term climate change. Yeah, absolutely. What about the current round of climate change, which again, climate scientists say is caused by human activity? Yeah, I certainly think that they, you know, again, based on the premise that there is climate change generally, the question is, is are humans, do, does humans' existence have an impact on that? Certainly, yeah. I, there, there, I don't think that there's any question that, um, well, certainly people are questioning it, but uh, humans right. do have an impact on that. So beyond an impact, I mean, what, what I'm hearing is human beings are human activity, not just, not just us, but what we're doing is causing climate change. What's yeah. happening now? Yeah. And again, I think I want to be careful about that because sometimes I think people say that human impact is the only cause of the change in climates, which I, in the climate, which I do not believe is true. But do humans have an impact on, and, and does what we do in this planet change the climate? Yes. So to what extent does the 
current change, and the current changes are dramatic in terms of the uh, larger scale uh, impacts. Yeah, and, 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 and historically, what's happening now is 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 unprecedented. Sure, and that, that's where I that's where the my expertise ends, and, and we'd have to rely on the science to, to answer that question. So yeah. I I don't have statistics today to tell you what that is, well, but I can, I, you know, I, I don't debate that yeah. humans have well, I mean, an impact in the it's role. It's pretty. The scientists are saying that yes, it's caused by human activity, specifically the the uh, the burning of fossil fuels and related activities. Yeah, I, I believe that. I believe that humans have an impact on on our climate. And okay, I guess and, I'm trying to nail down what percentage of the imp- uh, what percentage of the change is human impact. Yeah, I don't know. You'd have I, I don't I don't have a particular paper in front. Of, and again, I'm very okay. driven by what what the the experts would say okay. in that area. So I, I I'm not trying to dodge the question. Okay, I just yeah. don't know. So in response to the changing climate, yeah. what do we need to do? And what, I mean, specifically, what would you recommend? the Des Moines City Council and the city of Des Moines, all of us, yeah. do in response to the changing climate? A lot. <laughs> all right. So well. that, 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 yeah. yeah, so I think it, not only is it uh, personal, right, we need to individually take ownership over our impact on the environment. And again, what, whatever that might be, uh, yeah, we need to, to, to personally take an ownership in that, whether it's uh, making sure that we're locally sourcing foods or, or, you know, we've had the conversations over the last 24 hours about, um, you know, education is a huge thing. Where are you getting your food from? How are you getting your food? Understanding the complex uh, universe of where food comes from. So you would support localizing food consumption and production as much as possible. Yeah, I think that there's uh, a lot of value. And again, individuals need to be encouraged and educated. I think that's a big gap to getting there. But uh, I I certainly have no objection to it. And and my family certainly is uh, proponents of okay. sourcing locally. And beyond education, what should the city of, city of Des Moines do to help facilitate uh, the localization of food production? Yeah, I think the city plays a role in a, from a leadership perspective, right? You're coming at this from two angles, the macro level, which experiences a lot of resistance, right? Because people don't like to be told what to do generally. I mean, that's just, that's a fact, right? Uh, people right. don't like to be told what to do in particular. But we get used to it. For example, drive on the right side of the road. Sure. Uh, yeah, well, and that that's a... You know, I, I, I that is. Um, I always like to say there's a first generation issue. It's the first generation who is being told to do something that isn't okay. necessarily inherent. So, so e- the, the when when Europeans right. <laughs> come over, it's the, there's a stark contrast for driving on the right side of the road versus well, only only on the, the only the British and <laughs> well, the fair, Irish. Fair, yes, so, yes. but what what okay? So what should the city council, even though there will be resistance, what should the city council be doing or you know, or initiating? That will help us relocalize our food. Yeah, policies that encourage it, right? Not to, you know, like what, like allowing for urban agriculture. We've talked about this yesterday, which is encouraging uh, those in the community to, uh, you know, again source local their food and not not put impediments in Mm. the way of of local sourcing. Well, and compared to most cities, Des Moines is already pretty darn good when it comes to allowing people to do what Kathy and I do. Sure, raise half of our own food. Sure, uh, right here on a small small holding. Sure. Yeah. So uh, what more could the city do, I well, guess, is my question. My, my, so to me, it's and that goes back to the education. You're, you're, you're taking down barriers, and mm-hmm. then you're not just taking down barriers for the sake of doing it, like people for people like you who are heavily invested in right. it, but then you're taking the next step to encourage it. You know, okay. it, you know you're doing that personally, right, with your education uh, programming and, and the, the services that you offer here. Yeah. Um, but how are you taking that next step as a, as a leader on city council to say, 
not only do I appreciate what the Eds of the world are doing because we've opened up the doors, but how am <laughs> well, I? The Eds doing of the world too? couldn't do it without the Cathys of the world. Sure, certainly, certainly. Uh, so um, <laughs> we all have that. So what, what about energy? Energy is another key component of, of of combating the climate emergency. And again, a lot of folks feel we ought to be doing more with solar, wind, geothermal, conservation for sure. What's your thought on what the city of Des Moines can do regarding? regarding energy. Yeah, I, I think we continue to partner with organizations to make incremental change towards energy, uh, you know, use, utilizing green energy sources. And I think that is a complex ecosystem in and of itself, right? You can't just, right. and I think you would agree, we can't just flip the switch over to complete green energy tomorrow. I think we need to do it really, really fast. I, I, I've actually read <laughs> really, a lot really of your fast. materials on that. Yeah, no, and, and I mean, the, according to science, we need to do it really, really fast. And the urgency yeah. is, is certainly there. Uh, and so, finding ways to get there and I and I and I know again that's that goes back to the how do you make it accessible how mm. is the city uh, partnering to make those issues because there's a huge financial component of that too sure. right where yeah. does that financing get pushed how, how how who pays for it right and 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 th- that that's not just something that we can flip the switch on tomorrow to those things without realizing the impact of who in the community that what, what about the uh, benchmarking ordinance uh, regarding larger properties that have to achieve a certain level of efficiency you're talking about the what do i think about that particular that, that was passed um, last year i believe yeah i think it is a good step now was it is it is it perfect to solve the, the entire problem no but and is and is it necessarily right sized you know what you hear about these issues, and I think where we need to be proactive is when we put something like that in place, once we're getting feedback it, you know, from the community as to how it's impacting us, how it's impacting the community, the building community, mm-hmm. being dynamic in response to that. And I think that's something that we need okay. to continue to look into over the next four years, because I don't think, from my perspective, it's certainly not perfect. The three key elements of uh, relocalizing are, are, are the, the the raw elements of our existence, food, energy, and to me, water is the third one. And yeah. water is coming into increased focus with the drought going on. Yeah. And also, of course, we had this uh, this lawsuit filed by the Des Moines Water Works uh, because we are just, uh, I mean, we've got the one of the largest nitrate removal systems in the world. Earlier on this program, we talked with uh, Jen Terry with the Water Works about that. So uh, what, what would you do regarding our water system? Yeah, water is, again, just we are a... A hub and a very large ecosystem, a very large watershed, upstream and downstream impacts to that. Certainly, find you can't you can't make it rain, uh, so that's right. uh, that's uh, you know uh, certainly an impediment right now as to where we're getting our clean water sources. Now I know that there have been some solutions proposed, wells for example, uh, tapping into yeah, wells. Yeah, not ideal. Right, certainly, <laughs> and and so you know if you're looking at cleaning those and you're having a long-term plan, how are we looking at um, you know for example the other water sources that we have in Des Moines and how we're cleaning? What those. are the other water sources? Well, the Des Moines River in particular is, is but, yeah, but we don't use it. Own, it we, we, do, we, we do it, but uh, they do use it, but it has its own issues. Sure, certainly. Know? And that's what, I, that's what I'm talking yeah. about. How are we you know, unpacking those individual yeah. pieces? Because there's only so much that the city controls, right? You, you, there, there's, right? There's things we don't control. And as a city councilman, that's what you want to focus on is what you right. can control. There's a lot of tension over the last few years between city of Des Moines, uh, Des Moines Water Works and the uh, Iowa Partnership for Clean Water. You're familiar with that? Sure. I'm, I'm vaguely familiar. I don't have all of the details yeah. of the, a, the conversations. A, an initiative that Patty Judge and Ron, and Ron Corbett from Cedar Rapids and also uh, Chris Hensley were involved with. Any thoughts on whether that's the right way to go? Or? Yeah, no, I, I don't. I have not dug specifically mm-hmm. into all of that that I could comment fully on it today, but okay. I'm certainly happy to get back to you. All right, well, sure, and I'm happy to hear back yeah. from you. Yeah, yeah folks, uh, this has been a, a conversation with uh, Corey McAnally. I'm yeah. saying your name correct, you are. I hope. You are. Good, yep. good. 
And uh, again, we're hoping to interview all the, uh, well, we're going we're gonna to extend the offer to interview all the candidates for Des Moines City Council. I believe there are eight. Yeah. Thank you for being the first to, uh, to come on it. the program. Any last words for our audience? No, thank you. Thank you for your hospitality. It was wonderful to, to uh, take a tour around here. And uh, the, that mint, like I said, that mint tea, if I can get more of that. Mint uh, tea. Well, yeah. A happy human being. So thank you. Thank you for all you're doing <laughs> well, for our community. Thank you. are welcome. Once you start, this, this is the best mint I've ever discovered. It was discovered in front of Mars Cafe years ago. I took a sprig, and now it has taken over one corner of the yard We'll be happy to give you some more mint. I'd love it. Thank you. Thank you, for, thank Corey, you for your time. Sure. Thank you for joining us. So, folks, thank you, thank you for joining this uh, uh, segment of the uh, conversation. Again, you can always continue to follow the Fallon Forum on Facebook. You can check out our website, FallonForum.com, and you can sign up for my weekly blogs. That's, uh, um, yeah, that's you. You can just go to FallonForum.com and click Keep in Touch. Thanks. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Thanks for joining us today. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and I want to thank our nonprofit sponsors and also our business partners including psychiatrist David Drake. Whenever, you know, wherever you live in Iowa, anywhere, psychiatrist Dr. Drake can help through the uh, convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. That's offered on a self-pay basis. You can contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Also, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery store and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can also order groceries online, and they've got a catering and floral service as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. So welcome back to the uh, Fallon Forum. With me now, Kathy Burns, and I believe we're going to talk about one of our favorite people today, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos, <laughs> the founder of Amazon, and also of a group called called a group called Blue Origins. It's a tourist space travel endeavor. All right. And Richard Branson with Virgin Group, and he's got a space group as well. And he's out there in space now. It used to be that the U.S. and the USSR were competing to be the first country in space, or the country to put the first quote man in space, and now it's two rich men competing to see who gets into space first. Looks like Branson won. He he won by nine days. But he's coming back. However, <laughs> Bezos is going to go higher. Branson went 50 uh, uh, miles up in space, and then Branson, or, uh, 
Bezos is going 62. Okay, so and that he's this is because farther. they love the planet and want to save us from uh, the climate emergency, or what? That is what they're saying. Okay, they, they're saying <laughs> um, Bezos says that um, this could this could save the planet. It's all about climate change, and um, he, he's actually saying that. Yeah, this is yeah. about climate change. I was kind of being facetious. He also Sorry. foresees millions of people living and working in space. So. What this has to do with agriculture and uh, sustainability? Where do these what are these millions of people living in space drink? Where do they live? What kind of quality of life do they have? I haven't is dug that into addressed? that. I haven't dug into that. But if they sell a lot of flights to space, they're going to be happy campers. Those two guys. Right. Okay. And I'll be happy camper if I don't have to go on one of them. <laughs> uh, you know what's wrong with fixing the planet we've got? Well, <laughs> you know we're worried about carbon emissions anyway, and. One of the claims uh, about the, the flight that Branson took was that the, the CO2 emissions were comparable to a business class airline flight. However, <laughs> when you do the math and you look at the distance that's traveled uh, per passenger per kilometer, the CO2 emissions uh, for the space flight that Benson, Branson took are... Um, 12 kilograms of CO2 versus 0.2 kilograms of CO2 for so the commercial airline just flight. just to pencil out my math, a heck of a lot more. Uh, tons yeah, and but, tons but more. So I, I don't, you know, I, I hope people are not impressed. I mean, maybe, people, maybe some of you listening are impressed. I'm not. I, you know, there are so many problems here on Earth. And it seems like part of the motivation is to get off the planet before they destroy it. Why don't we try to save the planet? You know, we could do this. Everyone but. seems to be trying to find their way out of doing the life changes that we can and even might enjoy doing to mm. make sure our planet is livable for us and our uh, future generations. So yeah. I, I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> so Bezos is next with his flight. He's going to go further than Branson. That'll show mm -hmm. him. And uh, he's going to claim some green credits for this as well, I suppose. If, if this isn't the ultimate type of greenwashing, I don't, I don't know what beats it. Also, let's remember that Bezos and Amazon took over the Whole Foods <laughs> chain. Right. And uh, we talk a lot about shopping local. And, you know, if the Whole Foods store is in your neighborhood, that doesn't qualify as shopping local necessarily. This is not locally owned. They do still carry um, foods from local producers. Fact, do they really? They, I thought they imported a lot of their organics do. from large organic operations, industrial organic operations. They do some yeah. of that, too. I'd rather buy local non-organic than, than far away industrial organic myself. I'd rather eat food that we grow right out of well, our yard. Well, yeah, that's the first preference, of course. <laughs> or from people you know yes. in your community. Or, yes. Your, your local farmers, you know. So, yeah, I, this is... Okay, so what's next? Did you, I mean, have, you, have you heard any more about what happens after Jeff Bezos goes up? Presumably he comes back alive. More rich people want to do this. I mean, what's, what's next? Where does this lead? I don't know what it costs to go into space. I think I saw the, the, the um, amount of 150000 to go into space. And <laughs> I don't it? know how many people are going to be able to be carried on these commercial space tourism flights either. But, but they have to spend billions of dollars just designing the the spaceship, right? It's got to be billions. And the product that goes into the spaceship compared to, and we're not huge fans, 
huge fans of flying um, airline flights. Uh, you know, sometimes it feels necessary, but lots of people can go on those in one yeah. flight compared to maybe a crew of four or five and then several passengers so on, did, the, do these, on the tourist flight. Do these dudes space. have a business plan for how they get from I'm going to space to one million people are now living in space? Do they have a plan for that or is this just 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 a hyper, you know, promotion of of a bad idea? I mean, do they, do they really yes. do they really see a way to do that? I I think we should get them on the show. And ask oh, them yeah, what, their plan, right. what their plan. Well, is. now that we've already dissed the effort, I doubt I doubt they'll uh, no. they'll be inclined to join us. But yeah, I mean, and maybe people listening have another. Maybe maybe there maybe you see some good in this. I don't. I don't you, see any good in it at all. You know who saw some good in it was Donald Trump. Well, okay, uh, he, well, there you the go. other day he took credit for <laughs> oh, yeah. these two being able to do what they're doing. I bet um, Bezos loved that. <laughs> he he said uh, he said. They love sending rocket ships up, and I made it possible for them to do this. I actually said to my people, let the private sector do it, Trump said. These guys want to come in with billions of dollars. Let's lease them facilities. Because, well, that's, that's the private sector. Because, you know, you need certain <laughs> facilities to send right. up rockets. Taxpayer finance facilities. facilities. That's, the, you know, that's, that's the private sector. He already. ended the quote with, we have the greatest facilities. <laughs> <laughs> just to let you know. So Trump wants to make Mars great again. Well, Actually, my only intrigue in all this is I want to see somebody pull off what Matt Damon did in The Martian and grow potatoes on Mars. That's the only thing that might entice me to take a flight to Mars is the opportunity to grow potatoes. We're going to farm the That's heck how, out of this planet. That, yes. that and artichokes. <laughs> they can grow artichokes in space. That would be a big trick. It's hard enough to grow artichokes in Iowa, I think, right. as we've mentioned in several of the, yeah. the programs. Yeah, it just seems like this is all, um, to me, so childish. You have a messy room. You clean the room. You don't get to have another room in the house because your room is a mess. You clean it up. You were comparing this to the show Avatar the other day. Yeah, I mean, I mean, how many people watch Avatar, the movie with the blue people who live on another planet, and they're on their, they live on top of a mineral reserve that everybody, all the humans, really want. They want to pay millions for it. How many people have seen that movie and, and empathize with the humans? No, everybody who watches that watches that that movie. I, they, they, you've got to empathize. You've got to identify with, with the, the blue big people. blue people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's the, you know, and this is, um, you know, Bezos and Branson and others not cleaning up their mess. We all need to clean up our mess, and they need to lead the way. Kathy, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, folks, to our partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Groovy Goods. Thanks to our production squad of Sherry Herdina and Kathy Burns, and to the rest of our team, Forrest Detterman and Charles Goldman, thanks to you for tuning in today. Remember, like our Facebook page. Help us move this pioneering effort forward. And thanks again for tuning in to this week's Fallon Forum. <laughs>